morning we're going to be looking at James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. We're going to consider the operation, the origin, and the outcome of wisdom. So the operation, origin, and outcome of wisdom, James chapter 3, 13 through 18. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I want you to understand that this passage of Scripture, 13 through 18, ties in to everything that James has addressed, really confronted so far in the church, right, through this letter, right, as well as that which he is about to address in uh, chapters 4 and 5. It doesn't stand alone, okay? James isn't saying, all right, now that I've addressed the issues of uh, uh, faith without works and impartiality, um, as well as, you know, taming the tongue. Now we're going to move on to a, a, a totally different subject unrelated to everything else I've been doing in, in admonishing and exhorting you. Let's move on to the issue of wisdom. Okay, it's not what he's doing. Uh, James is, in part, in this section, 13 through 18, addressing the problem and giving then the solution to all these issues that he's addressed and will continue to address in this letter. Now, we know ultimately the problem is sin, right? And we've, we've, we've looked at that time and time again as we've progressed through James, right? And the solution for sin is, right, repentance, right? As a believer, right? We, we sin, we what? We turn from that sin, right? In repentance, again, to Christ, not in a saving way as a believer, right? But in this letter, James is also addressing practical Christianity. I mean, he's addressing very real issues that the church is, is dealing with, has been struggling with, sin issues, but very, very practical issues. Now, as we've looked at those issues, we've also been able to, to boil them down to uh, various uh, uh, greater truths and to apply those truths to our lives, maybe in a different way than, than the first century church that James was addressing. But nonetheless, this is a very practical letter. He's addressing very practical issues, sin issues, right? And in this section of the letter, right, he doesn't deal with just big theology and doctrine, which we know he deals with throughout the letter. But again, he boils it down to that practical issue, and this is wisdom. See, the problem, right, we said it was sin, solutions, repentance, it is. But the problem, the greater problem, or or to define the problem in a practical way, it's probably better to say that, to define the problem in a practical way, it's this. It's worldly wisdom. So that's the problem, practically that James is addressing now in this section is worldly wisdom. And the solution is 
heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above, or godly wisdom. So the problem is worldly wisdom that James is going to address. And then he's going to give the solution. And the solution to that is godly wisdom or heavenly wisdom or wisdom from above. I want to give you a definition. Actually, I'm going to give you several definitions of wisdom. First, we'll look at worldly wisdom. Right? And that's this. This is from Webster's Dictionary. Definition of wisdom, according to Webster, is accumulated philosophic scientific learning. Now, according to dictionary.com, definition of wisdom is knowledge of what is true and right coupled with just judgment as to action. Now, the problem with worldly wisdom, right? Dictionary.com gets a little bit closer in their definition to, to what heavenly wisdom is or true wisdom is, but the problem with worldly wisdom is is it's the standard of the truth or the knowledge behind that wisdom. See, with worldly wisdom, the standard behind that wisdom or that knowledge or that truth is, is man. Very often, most often, it's extremely subjective, those truths. I want you to understand that wisdom is not, it's not knowledge, knowing Knowing something does not make a person wise. You could be the most knowledgeable person that has ever lived and that will ever live, and by the sheer fact of knowing things does not make you a wise person. True wisdom, heavenly, godly wisdom from above, is this. It's the right use of knowledge, which is kind of what dictionary.com said for a definition. But greater than that, it's this. The knowledge and practice of the requisites for godly and upright living. So, so true wisdom is the right use of biblical knowledge. It's not just knowing something, okay? And it's not just putting what you know into practice. The world does that, right, based on the world's standard of truth, which is not God, okay? But true wisdom is the right use, biblical knowledge. And the truth behind that knowledge, the standard of that truth, the source of that truth is God. So when you think of wisdom, true wisdom, biblical wisdom, I want you to think conduct, action, right? That's what James in part, has been addressing in this entire letter, right? We said that the overarching theme of this letter is what? It's faith that works, right? Faith that has feet, faith that has external evidence via action in my life and in, in your life. So it's, it's very um, fitting that, one, James would address wisdom, period, in this letter, okay? But how he addresses it. And I hope as we progress through this section this morning, you see how he works this, this uh, uh, you know, discussing the, the, the issue of wisdom, worldly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. I hope you see how that really uh, uh, addresses all of these issues that James began with in chapter one concerning um, hearers and not doers, right? Moving on to partiality and then moving on to 
from partiality, faith without works, and then taming the tongue. I hope, I hope this morning it becomes clear and evident how all of that plays a part of worldly wisdom and then how the solution to that is ultimately wisdom from above or godly wisdom. Begin in James um, 3.13. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? He says, Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. He says, Who by your listening and not doing? Who by your partiality, by your faith without works? Who by your untamed tongue is wise and understanding. Who among us? And he is addressing the church. And he knows that there are unbelievers among them who are professing to be believers, primarily addressing us, believers. Who among us, by our own estimation, right, thinks ourselves to be Wise. She's obviously asking a rhetorical question, especially considering the, the sin issues that he's just addressed in the first part of this letter. He's forcing them, forcing us in this rhetorical question to continue to examine ourselves, which is what he's been doing you know, all along through this letter. He, he comes up to an issue, he addresses us, addresses the issue, addresses us in the issue, and forces us us to examine ourselves, our, our heart, our faith, our actions, and how those actions um, correspond to our heart or what we're saying with our mouths. So he continues that process here to force us to examine ourselves. Who among us are wise? Are you a wise man, he says? Do you think yourself to be wise? What is the wisdom that dominates our lives? Our thinking, our actions, is it is it worldly wisdom he's about to address as reflected by our partiality and other issues? Or is it, is it wisdom from above? He says, Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. He says, prove your wisdom by your works. You claim to be wise. You think that you're wise. He says, prove it. Show it. Right? This, of course, is consistent in all that James has been teaching us and commanding us to do from the very beginning of his letter. Right? Prove yourselves doers of the word. Right? James 1.22. Not merely hearers who delude themselves, but do what it says. Prove yourself, some of the translations say, to be a doer of the word the word. He says, prove yourselves to be a doer of the word in your gentleness or in the gentleness of wisdom. Your translation might say the meekness of wisdom. There is a contrast to the one who is wise in his own eyes. See, this person is prideful, but true wisdom is demonstrated in humility. So the Greeks saw gentleness and meekness as, as weakness. But weakness to the Jew was power under control. 
This we know is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 23. In 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. So James says, one, prove your wisdom by your works. You think yourself to be wise. If you're proclaiming yourself to be wise, then prove it. Again, here he's addressing those who are claiming it who in fact aren't wise. And he says, true wisdom, true wisdom will be evidenced by humility not self-proclamation. Look at me, I'm a wise man. But in fact, evidenced by humility. See, I think the, the, true, the true wise man, the, the, the mature believer, maturing believer, right? Because it, it is a process. No, no believer ever uh, arrives to that complete point of maturity until glory, until heaven, right? So it is a maturing process. Even the most mature believer is still... Maturing, but I think you take the maturing believer who is, who is wise. Again, right, the right use application of biblical knowledge. I don't think in that believer, you'll ever hear, at least by their own mouth or their own lips, that hey, I'm a wise man. Right, I praise God for the wisdom He's given me. No, I think that the the maturing, wise believer is going to be one who knows that he's a fool, understands that apart from Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in and through his life, imparting wisdom, right, the mature believer knows that, that he in and of himself is not, is not wise, that it's Christ through, through him. And so you'll never have that proclamation in his life that, hey, I'm wise, look at me. But the fool, right, the worldly wise man, right, he'll proclaim it. Concerning worldly wisdom and Verse 14, James says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Bitter jealousy is a harsh, resentful attitude towards others. Why? Maybe they have what you want. They are how you want to be and they are different than you are. And that bitter jealousy gives rise to selfish ambition, right? This self-promotion, right? The wisdom of the world says that your life is about others. No, it's about you. But the wisdom of the world says that your life is about you. And so you should do what you need to do to make yourself happy. And that's okay, right? You see how other people are, right? You see what other people have. You want that. Pursue it. It's the wisdom of the world. Pursue it. This word for selfish ambition, the Greek was a reference to one who entered politics. I find this fitting. Who entered politics for selfish reasons or personal gain and would do so regardless of the cost. But again, that's what 
It's what the world values. Again, it's about you. Do what, do what you want to do. Do what makes you happy. So you want that job, right? The world says, what? Worldly wisdom says, well, you want that job or that career? Well, do what you have to do to get it. You want power and influence? Then again, pursue it. Seek it. Do what's necessary. What if you have to twist twist the truth to get your way? All right. Do it. Now, when we can confront and and corner the world, right? It says, oh, no, we would never harm others in our pursuit of of self-promotion or gain, right? But we know that actions speak louder than words, right? Worldly wisdom says this in this pursuit. It says, you want to grow your church? Well, then you do what you have to do to achieve your goals, Right? You want your church to look a specific way, have certain types of people in it? Then you do what's necessary. See, I think this in part is what the first century church was uh, doing. Um, You know, James addressed that in chapter 2 when he was talking about partiality in the church, right? Where the believers were doing what? They were showing favor to the haves, right? Those that had wealth and, and power and influence, right? And what had a disdain for the have-nots, for the, for the poor, for the, for the lowly. Again, it's what the world says, right? Favor the rich. Favor those who can help you, right? Those that can't, eh, forget about them. It's the wisdom of the world. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, of course, we know is contrary to Scripture. Turn with me to Romans um, 1. Look at verse 28 um, through 32. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. There are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil and disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Worldly wisdom is a product of depravity and reflects the world's way. 1 Corinthians 3. One through three. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Worldly wisdom in the church, 
well, in the lives of believers as individuals first, and then in the church collectively is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians uh, 13. Four through seven. It says, Love is patient, it's kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Worldly wisdom does not reflect agape love. The results of worldly wisdom, the characteristics, do not reflect this love. Ephesians 4.31 It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you along with malice. Turn with me over to Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness. Hmm. What does worldly wisdom say? It's about you. Pursue your interests. Your life is not greater than you. But here we're told to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another is more important than yourselves. Is that what the world proclaims? No. But here in Scripture, we're told to actually regard others as more important than ourselves. So this bitter jealousy, this selfish ambition, this, this worldly wisdom, ultimately we're told what? To put it away. To be done with it. So he says worldly wisdom, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Again, I want you to understand this. I'm going to read this uh, uh, twice. Make sure you listen, please. Only... A fool boasts in wisdom. Only a fool boasts in wisdom. The one boasting of worldly wisdom is not wise. And the one with true wisdom only boasts in the one who imparted that wisdom to him. Only a fool boasts in wisdom. The one boasting of worldly wisdom is not wise. And the one with true wisdom only boasts in the one who imparted that wisdom to him. See, when a person embraces worldly wisdom, it is not only arrogant, but it is, it is untruthful. James says it's a lie, and it is a lie, because worldly wisdom is not wisdom. The worldly wise man is not wise. doesn't matter if you're aware of it or not. fact remains when you say you are wise and you are not, it's a lie. 
You see, worldly wisdom is not wisdom. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. The wisdom of God. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the word of the cross is foolishness. Ultimately, it's not foolishness, right? To us, to those whom God has saved, to those whom God will save, it's not foolishness. But it's the power of God, Scripture tells us. But to the world, it is foolishness. It says, for it is written, in verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, the Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is what? It says it's wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. There's no one wise according to the flesh, folks. It says, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in what the Lord. So the fool boasts in wisdom. The worldly wise man boasts in wisdom. But the maturing believer whom God has granted wisdom doesn't boast in himself, doesn't even boast in the wisdom that God has given him or her, Right? But boasts in what? The Lord. I submit to you that you will never hear a maturing believer boasting in wisdom, but boasting in the Lord. Now, others might point out and say, hey, you know what? He or she is, is, is wise. And I would seek their counsel on that. Right? They're wise not because they're wise. They're wise because God has granted that to them. Right? And that's not a boast in them. And I'm not glorying in him or in her in saying that. I'm actually boasting in the Lord and even saying that this person is wise. Concerning the origin of worldly wisdom, verse 15 of chapter 3. 
He says, this wisdom, worldly wisdom, the wisdom he's referring to, which we know is not wisdom at all, right? But he says, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, it's demonic. It's not from God. In fact, worldly wisdom is opposed to God. You have God. You have worldly wisdom. There is no mixing of the two, and there cannot be mixing of the two. It is earthly. That is, it's from man. It's not from heaven, not from God, but it's limited to earth. Right? It says it's natural. Literally means animal-like. Right? It is of the flesh. He says that it is not only earthly, natural, but it's demonic. And, and I hope, think about that for just a minute. I pray that you allow that to soak in. Worldly wisdom is demonic. We know John eight forty four that Satan is what? He is the father of, he's the father of lies. Right? And not only is he the father of lies, he's also the father of worldly wisdom. To rely upon worldly wisdom, in part, is to embrace or to emulate, if you will, the character of Satan, the character of demons. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Verses um, 14 and 15. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. I know that he was addressing false apostles and prophets and and, in part um, in this passage, okay? But Satan, the father of lies, the deceiver, right, who comes across as an angel of light, right, paints worldly wisdom in the same vein, right, that it's good, right? And I see as I've studied this this text and even now as as I'm preaching through it, I see myself sitting in front of the TV and flipping through Oprah. I don't watch Oprah, okay? I'm just saying I see it. Picture, right? Dr. Phil, right? Um, This counselor or that counselor or this talk show host who's trying to impart wisdom to his or her listeners and improve the lives of others. And how we, hopefully not we, but as American people, right? People flock to those programs for guidance, for for help, for wisdom. Because, oh, what Dr. Phil has to say is so wise and it's so true and it's so good. And it's not. It's demonic, James says. Worldly wisdom 
is in fact demonic. I know sometimes our talk show hosts, right, say something that's correct, right, say something that's true. Right? A broken clock is right, what, at least twice a day or is right twice a day, so sometimes they can be correct. Does it make it biblical in what they're saying? You see, if Dr. Phil comes and says, son, you should, you should love your wife. You should love your wife with everything you are, right? Well, that's true, isn't it? I mean, we should, as believers, we know that we should love our spouses, right? As, as Christ loved the church. We know that we should love our neighbor as our, ourself. So even if, if Dr. Phil makes that statement, you know what? You should love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? But if his source for that statement doesn't come from here, right? And it's still worldly wisdom that he's giving. So ultimately, James says, what? It's demonic. The source, the origin, the character, what reflects Satan is of Satan. See, worldly wisdom is sin. Worldly wisdom is conceived in sin. When you rely upon it, when it's what drives you, when you can't get wait to get home from work because you want to turn on Oprah or Dr. Phil because, oh, they're just full of such good stuff and good advice and help, right? It's sin. If you are proclaiming it, that is worldly wisdom, it's sin. Well, you know what Dr. Phil says? Dr. Phil says you should whatever, right? It's sin. You know, we let it in our lives. It's all around us. When we let it govern our lives, and it's unthinkable. More than that, we let, and I don't mean we as in this church here, but we as in believers let worldly wisdom govern the church. When a church adopts secular or worldly business models, because it works, okay? All right? That's worldly wisdom. The church brings that in to the church and allows it to govern their actions, to direct them, to drive them. It is relying upon worldly wisdom. It is sin, and it's demonic, is what James says. We look at a church, and, and I'm not... I'm not going to go around and I'm not going to look at all these churches and start pointing fingers and saying, you know, demonic, 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 demonic. But it's true. If we look at this church over here or over there, right? And we say, well, wow, look at how they, look at how they operate. You know, they went and they actually did a market survey in the community. And, and this is not uncommon at all, folks. They did a market survey in the community and they, and they wanted to see what the people wanted. You know, what are the people around us? What, what do they want in a church? And so we did this survey, and now our seeker church, right, is modeled after what the people want. 
Oh, and it's growing by leaps and bounds, right? That's demonic. That's what James says. Worldly wisdom is demonic. And if you're running a church based on worldly wisdom, then it's demonic. I'm not saying that the believers themselves are demonic, but the principles, the guiding principles, the governing force behind it is straight from the pit of hell. That's what James is saying. When we allow worldly wisdom to govern us as individuals, when we allow it to govern us as a church, straight from the pit of hell is what it is. This should be our driving force. How do we, how do we operate? How do we, how do we live as individuals, right? What drives us? How do we know what's right and wrong? How do we know how we should respond in a certain situation? How do we know how to live and act? It's this, right? As a church, what should be our driving force? Again, it's, it's this. What should we, where should we go? Or not what should we go, but where should we go when we need counsel? We should go here. In verse 16, James now addresses the outcome of worldly wisdom. In verse 16, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, again, reverse, uh, referring back to verse 14, basically saying here, um, where, where there is worldly wisdom, okay, where worldly wisdom exists, he says there is disorder and every evil thing. Where there is disorder. Where worldly wisdom exists as evidence in part by jealousy and selfish ambition, he says there is disorder. There is confusion, right? Disorder that comes from instability. Now, for a minute, let's think about how we see this in society, right? Why can't Washington, D.C. get along? Because there is no true wisdom in Washington, D.C., right? What governs our country? Worldly wisdom. So is there any surprise or should there be any surprise that there's absolute chaos? No. See, we see this in our lives when we embrace it. We also see it in the church when we allow it. And in part, this is what was going on in the the Corinthian church that Paul was addressing. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12, 20. So we'll look at verses 19 through 21, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. All this time you've been thinking we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. But perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, anger, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances, he says, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, the immorality, sensuality, which they have practiced. This is what life looks like when it's governed by worldly wisdom. This is what church looks like when it is governed by worldly wisdom. 
He says in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder, again, confusion, and there is every evil thing. Evil thing literally translates worthless. means of no account. So the results of worldly wisdom are ultimately worthless. Machiavelli said what? The end justifies the means, right? The end of worldly wisdom is worthlessness. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, and he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. The worthless works that we do through worldly wisdom will what? Will burn up. We will suffer loss, but it says he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. You see, for the believer, that which is done according to worldly wisdom, regardless of the results, will ultimately be counted as loss. And we know that God uses sin sinlessly, right? So in our worldly wisdom, when we get results that seem to glorify God, right? They do, and they can. I think of certain, certain church models, right? Where, where church, gathering together on Sunday morning, is not about edifying the saints, okay? It's about proclaiming a man-centered gospel, right, for the purpose of trying to strong-arm non-believers into walking an aisle and accepting Christ and becoming saved, okay? That whole paradigm there of doing church is based on worldly wisdom and it is sin and it does not glorify God but we know that God nevertheless saves and I I would I would probably say saves maybe many as a result okay of of sinful practices in the church so the result God can use for his glory. And he does absolutely, right? That's God using sin sinlessly. It doesn't excuse the sin. It doesn't justify the sin. And on that day, when all this stuff will be revealed through the fire, right? The defense before God and saying, but God, I know that 
It was sinful. Now, now, now I know that it was sinful and how I, how I did this. But hey, God, look at the results, right? I mean, hey, you saved people regardless, so, so we're, we're squared up, right? God's going to say, no, worthless. What you did was worthless. It's counted to me now as worthless. Now, I still used it for my glory. I still used it for my glory. But your actions absolutely worthless. So the problem in part that James has been addressing chapter one up until chapter three and then he jumps back in in chapter four is worldly wisdom. And it's living life. It's operating your not just own personal individual life but family and church according to worldly wisdom. And that's why we see these problems in the church. That's why there's partiality. That's why you're not taming your tongue. That's why there's no evidence of faith. That's why you're hearing and not doing. Problem in part that James addresses, right? Sin, solution, repentance, right? Problem practically is worldly wisdom. You're watching too much Dr. Phil, listening too much to Oprah or or whoever, whatever, right? Embracing the world, The solution, he says, is godly wisdom. In uh, chapter 3, verse 17 of James, he says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle, reasonable, full of faith, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. It says, in the seed, verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He says, but the wisdom from above. True wisdom. True wisdom is from God. In fact, if you know not God, you know not wisdom. Psalm one eleven ten. In Psalm one eleven ten it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Also turn with me to first Corinthians chapter two. Verse 14 through 16. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Talking about an unbeliever. An unbeliever does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they, non-believers, are what? Spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, Yet he himself is appraised by no one for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. See, if you know not God, 
you know not wisdom. Biblically, okay, we're talking about true wisdom here, not worldly wisdom, true biblical wisdom, okay? If you are a non-believer, you are not, apart from the saving work of Christ in your life, apart from repentance and faith, cannot be wise. The wisdom that you have, the wisdom that you think you may have, is not true wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. I was thinking this morning about Albert Einstein and how he arguably was the most intelligent from a knowledge perspective, the most intelligent human being, right? Um, Aside from Christ, because Jesus created it all, so he's got it all figured out. Aside from Christ, Albert Einstein was the most, if not one of the most, intelligent human beings who has ever lived. I mean, some of his, his theories and his thoughts and ideas, I can't even wrap my mind around, okay? The best of my knowledge, and I believe it's true, that Albert Einstein died in his sin. All of his knowledge, all of his scientific understanding and ability to theorize did not make him wise. In fact, Albert Einstein was not a wise man, but he was what? He was a fool. Because the message of the cross is what? Is foolishness to those who are perishing. True wisdom is only appropriable to believers. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you are wise, but it's available. James is addressing the church in this letter. I have no doubt, and we've looked at this um, uh, time and again up to this point through, through his letter, right? There's no doubt that we know that he's addressing believers who are struggling with sin, right? Who are dealing with sin, who are living in unrepentant sin, okay? But we also know that there are non-believers who are proclaiming that they are believers as well. And he's aware that he's addressing them as well, okay? Wisdom is available. That's what he's saying. Is it is available to us. Not because it's in us, because we are intrinsic possessors of it and we're not, but it's available to us through God. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Godly wisdom is... Now, I want you to think about, we're going to go through each one of these words here, and I want you to think about this in the context of all that James has been addressing in the church from the beginning of chapter 1 until now. He says, first, godly wisdom is pure. It's spiritually pure, right? It's set apart from the wisdom of the world, just as we as believers now are to be set apart, right? Godly wisdom is pure 
set apart. It's sanctified, if you will, not like we are sanctified, but in the sense that it's set apart from worldly wisdom. It's set apart from the world. Godly wisdom is first, pure. Godly wisdom is second, it's peaceable. It's peaceable towards others, right? Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Godly wisdom is gentle. An attitude of patient humility in regards to relationships with others. We know Matthew 5, 5 says, what blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now think of the church in showing partiality, right? Favoring the haves, right? Showing a disdain for the have-nots, right? Thinking back to chapter 2 here, right? And yet he says godly wisdom is it's peaceable and it's gentle, right? Peaceable and gentle is set completely in contrast to how the church was behaving regarding their partiality. So James is still addressing these issues. Fourth, he says it's reasonable. Godly wisdom is reasonable. It produces reasonableness in the life of the believer. What does that mean? It means this. It means teachable, compliant, and obedient to God's commands. So James is commanding the church all along through this this letter so far to, to repent from these sins, okay, right? And in faith to turn to Christ, again, not in a salvific way, okay, but in a a daily practical living way, okay? And he says godly wisdom is obedient and it produces obedience in the lives of believers. And that's what James is calling not just the first century church that he was writing this letter to, but he's calling us to through this letter is to obedience. And godly wisdom is characterized by obedience. Obedience to what? To being not just a hearer, but a doer. Obedience to not partiality, but impartiality, right? Obedience to what? Demonstrating our faith, not just with our words, but with our works. Obedience to what? Taming the tongue. It says godly wisdom is fifth, full of mercy that is concerned for others, especially those who suffer pain and hardship. Again, thinking back to chapter 2 or the first half of chapter 2 where he's dealing with this issue of partiality. But he says godly wisdom is full of mercy. We know that what? Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Right? Again, he's setting in contrast what godly wisdom is and how the church has been behaving. Next, he says, godly wisdom, what? It's full of good fruits. Again, this being contrasted to the fruitless work of what? Worldly wisdom. For the life of the believer, for the believer who embraces worldly wisdom, the fruit is worthless. Again, even though God can use that, and he does at times, we know, to glorify himself, right? God uses sin sinlessly. Thinking back to Rahab, right? Uh, a couple of sermons ago, right? Rahab, when she lied about the spies, right? I mean, that was sin. Complete, total sin, right? God used her sin, that lie, right? 
in a sinless way to protect the spies, okay? But Rahab's defense before God isn't going to be, but hey, God, the spies were saved. God's going to say, you know, Rahab, I was going to save them anyway, and I didn't need your help, and I especially didn't need you to sin in that, okay? So God used her sin sinlessly, but the fruit of her worldly wisdom in lying is ultimately worthless on her account. God's not going to praise her for that. God's not going to praise Rahab for, for the fact that those spies were saved. And he's not going to do the same thing for us when in worldly wisdom we, we sin as well, even, even if it produces fruit that glorifies God. He's not going to credit that to our account. But godly wisdom produces good fruit in our lives on our account. Godly wisdom is unwavering, literally without partiality. Again, thinking back to chapter 2. Finally, he says, godly wisdom is without hypocrisy. That is, it is sincere or genuine in regards to faith, to action, and to the life of the believer. This is what James has been addressing all along. The one who hears, chapter 1, and does not do. It's a hypocrite. The one who says he loves God, but not his neighbor, right? Partiality, James, first part of chapter 2, is a hypocrite. The latter part of chapter 2, the one who says he has faith, but yet has no accompanying external evidence or works, is a hypocrite. The first half of chapter 3, the one who praises God with his tongue and then yet turns around and curses his neighbor with his tongue is a hypocrite. Reflects worldly wisdom. But James says what? He said, Godly wisdom as evidenced in the life of the believer is without hypocrisy. Now the outcome of godly wisdom, verse 18. It says, in the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, the fruit of wisdom and righteousness, uh, the fruit of wisdom, sorry, the fruit of wisdom is righteousness and peace. Now, not righteousness before God and not peace with God, right? Being wise doesn't make a person righteous before God. In fact, only those who are positionally righteous before God, right, can be wise, okay? So again, he's not saying that the fruit of wisdom is righteousness before God or with God, right? The only way man can be declared righteous before God is what? It's through repentance, turning of sin, right? Faith, turning to Christ. And when a person repents from their sin and turns to Christ, then God declares that person righteous, right? And his declaration of them being righteous isn't based on that person's repentance and faith, but it's actually based on the work of the one who, in repenting, they're turning to in faith, and that's Christ. So believers are declared righteous, right, before God because of Christ. So when God looks at now the believer, he sees a righteousness, but it's a foreign righteousness, right? When he looks at you, when he looks at you, he doesn't see your righteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Christ, 
Okay? So this is, not, this is not what James is addressing here by saying the fruit of wisdom is righteousness. What he's talking about is right living. Okay? The fruit of wisdom, the outcome of godly wisdom is right living. Living according to God's commands. Living in such a way that honors Him and glorifies Him. Also, he says, the fruit of wisdom is not only this righteousness, as far as right living goes, but also peace. And again, not peace with God. Actually, it will provide a a, a daily peace, right? Not peace in the sense of us being once at enmity with God, now being at peace with God, okay? But it will provide peace um, for us spiritually, but specifically in the context of this letter, in the context of all the issues that James has addressed in the first three chapters and the issues that he's going to address in the last two chapters, he's talking about peace within the body. Godly wisdom provides peace here in the church between me and you. And if there is not peace between me and you, then then there is not godly wisdom governing maybe my life, maybe your life, maybe our relationship together. But godly wisdom in our lives, in this body, will provide peace among one another. And this peace will be evidenced by impartiality, right? It'll be evidenced by external works. It'll be evidenced by tamed tongues that don't hurt one another. Father, give us wisdom. Lord, give us true wisdom. There is, there is only one form of true wisdom, God, and that is from you. God, and it doesn't exist within us. It's not intrinsic to us. It is from you. It is, it is through you. And its purpose is to, one, glorify you and to edify us. And so, Lord, I pray for, not just for me, but every one of us in here, God, I pray for godly wisdom, Lord. We, we study your word, Father. We hear your, your truths proclaimed, Father. And we need to apply these truths to our lives, Lord. God, we still, even as your children, can't do that apart from you working in us constantly. And so, Father, I I ask for that for me and for everyone in here, Lord. I pray, God, that when we as individuals and, and as a church, hopefully, Lord, you keep us from it, but when we do, Father, rely upon worldly wisdom, embrace it, entertain it, proclaim it, Father, I pray for immediate conviction, and I pray for a continued grantance, granted re- repentance from worldly wisdom and that we would turn to that. And Jesus, we would turn to you and continue to embrace you in faith and in trusting your word and your design for our lives as individuals and your plan for us as a church. Father, be glorified in our lives, be glorified through our lives, glorify yourself in us and through us. Jesus, do this for your sake.
for our good.